Hello, and welcome to Enabling Commons, a podcast at the McGill Center for Human Rights and Legal Pluralism. Enabling Commons is a space for dialogue among persons with disabilities and their allies to explore strategies that will transform our environments, our commons, to be meaningfully enabling for all. My name is Ellen Spanagle. And today I'm joined by Sebastian Jodoin, Director of the Disability Inclusive Climate Action Research Program, or DICARP. So Sebastian is a law professor at McGill University, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Human Rights, Health and Environment. And before I ask you some more questions about disability, climate justice, your work there, I'm wondering if you can actually tell me a little bit about the podcast itself. And specifically, I'm really curious about the name. Why Enabling Commons? Well, so this podcast is really something, an initiative that we are hoping to use to be able to tell compelling stories about uh, the challenges faced by people with disabilities, but also the roles that they are playing in dismantling the barriers that they confront uh, in terms of uh, achieving quality and ensuring protection for their uh, human rights. And so enabling commons in one part sort of reference the importance of having a space that's empowering for uh, people with disabilities. But also we, as a podcast itself, is looking to create that space and to feature and center the voices of people in the disability community that are at the front lines of uh, remaking uh, our world uh, to so that it can be more accessible and disability inclusive. So Commons here also has this reference to, to the environment uh, as um, this uh, season and, and future season of the podcast will also address intersections between disability rights and the environment or also other spaces as well. That's a really uh, helpful and important explanation of enabling commons. I think that clarifies a lot of what it means for me. And since the season is about disability and climate justice, I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more about um, DICARB itself so the research program, how you got involved in starting it, what the goal of the research program is and what you're hoping to accomplish. So uh, let me start with the program. The program is something that I'm leading with colleagues and students at McGill, as well as in collaboration with scholars and activists uh, in the field of disability and climate change from all over the world. And we've brought everyone together with the objective of generating co-producing, disseminating, and translating information, knowledge uh, at the intersections of disability and climate change. So when I talk about co-production, I'm talking really about the importance of developing knowledge with people who are experts about the challenges that they confront in a changing climate and the potential solutions that could be adopted to empower them in that context. Uh, When I talk about uh, translation, What I mean there also is the importance of ensuring that uh, in our research that we produce materials that are accessible uh, in various formats to people in the disability community, but also to uh, policymakers. So their word climate action is intentional because we are really uh, actively trying to promote uh, the importance of rights-based approaches to climate policy, uh, climate decision-making, climate action for persons with disabilities. I think this really helps give me a bigger picture of what DICARP is um, and what you and the research program are trying to accomplish. 
I just want to know a little bit more about your own experience working in climate change and in human rights. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the work you've been involved in in the past um, and how it led into what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. So I've been working on the relationship between human rights and climate change for about 15 years. I've done this as an activist, as a lawyer, and as a scholar. I've worked on a range of things from the role that human rights can play in obliging governments to reduce their emissions to the role that human rights can play in ensuring that solutions to climate change don't harm or disempower different uh, segments in society. So most of my work had been looking at specifically the relationship between the rights of indigenous peoples and climate justice. And I was due to go to Paris in 2015, which was kind of going to be my, the culmination of my many years of going to the climate negotiations. And I was going to go there to once again discuss and present work on human rights and climate change along with uh, other lawyers and legal scholars and activists. And uh, a, few, uh, a few weeks before I was due to be uh, in Paris for those negotiations, my, my life changed. So basically, I uh, overnight developed a range of symptoms, which, uh, which were pretty severe. And so were quickly diagnosed as uh, relapsing multiple sclerosis in the emergency room. And so I did not go to Paris. I had someone else uh, go in, in my place. And during this time, this period, I, I focused on rehabilitation. And uh, at the time, I remember thinking that I was going to obviously end up working on uh, on healthcare. This is just or and, and disability rights. This is just the way my personality goes. I just focus on things that you know come up in in my life. But and so my thought was, well, I'm going to. I'm going to finish up my work on human rights and climate change, and then uh, I'll, I'll start working on this other other stuff. Uh, and then, so this is where, you know, in November, December 2015, then in the summer of 2016, summer comes along, and I suddenly realize, you know, I live in Montreal where it's hot and humid in the summer, and I realize that, like, most people with, with MS and most people with neurological illnesses, I'm very sensitive to heat. So I find that if I'm stepping outside, I get this, this symptom, which in fact I used to use to diagnose MS, which is called l'hermite sign. So it's like you have these like tiny electric shocks that run through uh, the back of your head and your, down your spinal cord. Very uncomfortable and unnerving. So we're in the summer of 2016, and suddenly I realized that this problem that I've been working on for all of my adult life that I'm suddenly a part of a, a group that's disproportionately affected by climate change, right? So we know climate change leads to a gradual increase in temperatures. We've just had 10 of the hottest uh, years on record in the last decade. And we know also it leads to an increase in, in um, the frequency and severity of uh, heat waves. So as I'm realizing this, I'm also starting to think about you know, have, has anyone actually looked at the relationship between um, disability, disability rights, and climate change? And I and I realized uh, a little bit to my own sort of shame that uh, no, no one had really looked into this. I had recently, uh, at the time, I was in the process of uh, co-editing a handbook on human rights and climate governance, 
with other uh, leading uh, scholars and human rights lawyers and activists from around the world. And we had a chapter on women's rights and children's rights, and of course on indigenous rights, uh, and no chapter on disability rights. So that's basically how I started working on this topic and, and saw that there was a huge gap and basically felt that I had a responsibility to help fill that gap in terms of research and, and also in working with uh, members of the disability community in uh, advancing disability inclusive climate action. So thank you so much for sharing for sharing that. I'm wondering a little bit about how the disability community or like other um, disabled scholars and activists were people who you started to learn from and started to draw on some of their knowledge um, in a sense. I'm wondering if you could tell me about like how you got connected um, to the disability community. Mm -hmm. So I began looking at this relationship between disability rights and climate change and engaging with people in the disability community, I began to do this with a lot of modesty because first of all, I knew that I was coming into this movement, which has been around for decades and that I was a newcomer. So I had a lot to learn. And uh, I also knew that I was coming into this with a lot of privilege. So as a, as a white, uh, straight man with relative job security and, you know, lots of socioeconomic uh, privilege, uh, I knew that uh, my experience, my perspectives, uh, the challenges and barriers I would encounter in society that I've encountered as, ha uh, as someone who has multiple sclerosis are not at all uh, the same as people uh, with disabilities, even within Canada, not to mention other parts of the world. Uh, in fact, that aspect of realizing how advantaged I was by my privilege in terms of managing my my MS and uh, is also sort of the one of the things that's led me to really insist on having an intersectional approach to to this work and every time I present uh, in public on climate change and, and disability I always self-identify as a person with disability but I'm always very very quick to also point out that, you know, I have this privilege that, that I, therefore my perspectives don't, uh, of course, reflect the entire disability community, which is also really diverse. So that's, I guess, another, another thing to realize is that the disability community is really diverse. There's, there's really different experiences in terms of types of impairments, types of uh, forms of oppression, especially that are intersecting. But what I've noticed and coming again, coming from the sort of really the climate field and, and human rights, I was, I've been really, really sort of encouraged and heartened by how open people have been in the disability community. So my experience of, you know, uh, now 15 years of collaborating with people in climate change is that people are really busy. There's the NGO sector can be kind of competitive. Everyone's competing for attention, resources that are far and few between and uh, and the disability community is, is also is confronted by similar challenges. But honestly, everyone, almost everyone that I've spoken to, when I've said, hey, I'm a legal scholar at McGill, I'm trying to launch a new program or do new research on disability and climate change, would you like to work with me? Pretty much everyone, except basically one or two, basically called back to me and said, this is awesome. Uh, we'd love to work with you. And so that's been really encouraging. 
And what's been interesting is from, from speaking with people in the disability community, there's this realization of, oh, we need to work on this, but we don't know how, right? Like we know climate change is, you know, a major threat to, to the world and, and, and obviously a threat to us, but we're new to the space. We don't have the resources or the know-how to engage on these issues. And so, uh, and there's not much of an evidence base to deal with these issues. So people have been very happy to collaborate with me. And, and on my end, I've sort of, have approached it as I'm new to this field uh, of disability rights. I'm a climate expert and I'm willing to learn and, and collaborate with you and see how we can work together. And so, yeah, that's been very, um, very uh, enriching and gratifying. So you've explained to me that the disability community has like a lot of expertise and knowledge that often is pushed to the wayside, especially when it comes to climate justice. And from what I understand, DICARP is really about bridging that gap. It's about bringing like evidence and like scientific knowledge into disability communities and like disability NGOs, but then also elevating the voices of people with disabilities in climate justice. Um, you have people in this research program from all over the world representing all kinds um, of disability organizations and movements. So I'm wondering how, um, like, how you're bringing everybody together. What kind, what kinds of projects you're doing, in, in relation to the to the rights issues, but also some of some of the other uh, missions that you were explaining to me a little bit earlier in our conversation. So we have been working together to engage the disability community. Basically, the idea is we built a. We started by building an advisory panel. We're bringing together disability activists and scholars and some climate activists. All from all over the world, uh, representing together a global network of people who are interested in these issues or already working in, on related issues. And together, uh, we're moving forward an agenda that has sort of three big prongs. So one prong is basically using the disability rights framework to understand the impacts of climate change for persons with disabilities and the opportunities and challenges that they face in terms of adapting or coping with climate change. And so there's a component to that research, which is legal research, but also empirical research. So we have funding to do a project in India that will allow us to, to um, conduct the first empirical assessment of uh, the capacity of people with disabilities to cope with different climate impacts. We have then a second prong, uh, which is really looking at influencing public policy, uh, climate policies at the domestic and multilateral levels. So we're working closely with the International Disability Alliance, and uh, which is a sort of large umbrella group that represents uh, disabled persons organizations from all over the world. And something called the thematic group of persons with disabilities on disaster risk reduction and climate action. And so we're going to support them on their efforts to establish a, a constituency for the disability community under the climate negotiations. And here in Canada, we are working right now on a review of all of Canada's climate policies to look at whether uh, they consider the rights of persons with disabilities and we'll have recommendations on, on what should be done. So th those are kind of things that, that we're doing. And then the third thing is really uh, actually really closely connected to this podcast uh, and, the, and our website, which is 
to position the, uh, the center, the voices and expertise of people with disabilities in relation to climate change. Something that has really stuck out to me um, in opportunities I've had to hear you speak and like look at some of your work is that you talk about people with disabilities as knowers, makers, and doers um, of climate action. And I think that's like very powerful, but I'm wondering if you can explain to me like what that means for yourself, but also in general. Mm -hmm. So this expression actually comes from something called the Crip Feminist Techno Science Manifesto, persons with disabilities as knowers, makers, and doers. Um, and the idea is, and so this is a uh, put together by a scholar who uh, has studied uh, design and tells these stories of people in the disability community remaking the world around them. So the famous example of this is uh, in the 70s, people with disabilities started just making their own curb cuts in the sidewalks in Berkeley, San Francisco. So today, you know, these curb cuts are... Uh, a common feature of cities in the industrialized world. But um, this wasn't always the case. And in the 70s in, 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 um, in San Francisco, people with disabilities just took equipment and made their own curb cuts. And there's still examples of this today. In Toronto, for instance, there's an initiative where people are, uh, basically there's, there isn't a lot, uh, there's going to be, it's gonna be a legal requirement in Ontario uh, in about two years for all businesses to be physically accessible for wheelchair users, but that re legal requirement hasn't come into effect. And in the meantime, there's members of the disability community there in Toronto that have been putting these sort of makeshift little ramps that are A, making those businesses accessible, but B, they also actually are a political statement around the fact that there's still a gap that hasn't been, has been addressed. So there's lots of examples of people with disabilities remaking the world around them. And uh, what we wanna do is we want to uh, uh, tell stories of people with disabilities as knowers, makers, and doers, doers in the climate space. So whatever exists uh, on climate change and disability, for the most part, highlights the vulnerability of persons with disabilities. Uh, and, you know, the, honestly, this is pretty much the case from a lot of research and a lot of mainstream accounts of disability is all about their vulnerability. And that's not to say that there aren't uh, serious and significant and disproportionate ways in which climate impacts affect persons with disabilities. But for me, as someone who has a disability, uh, it's really important to also talk about the contributions that people with disabilities can make in terms of enhancing their resilience to to climate change and how those efforts can also can also contribute to society at large. So I'll give like a very personal example, which is I think I so I already told you how I was more sensitive to heat. Um, but you know I have a nine year old and I guess you know she was a bit younger back then and we like to do a lot of hiking as a family. And uh, for me, uh, it was really important that I was able to spend time with my daughter outside uh, in the summer. So I started thinking about what can I do to basically go outside? And I eventually, uh, eventually found these uh, cooling vests. So these are vests that are, um, that are uh, sometimes they have water or the more advanced ones have like another type of liquid. 
that freezes at a certain temperature and it can keep you cool if you wear them. You basically are wearing like a like a like ice packs on your chest and your back. And I found that basically I could go outside even if it was 40 degrees and I would be fine. Uh, and I could do that for about three hours. And so, you know, one of the things uh, that I, I used to walk around basically in Montreal wearing this vest in the summer. And I, you know, and I, at first I was a little bit, I guess, shy about it, or I thought if people would ask me questions about it or whatever. And then I realized, of course, this was silly. It was like my equivalent of, of, of using any type of device that ensures your, your mobility. Um, anyway, what I found also over time is when people would ask me about the vest, uh, a lot of people were like, oh, I need this. So uh, menopausal women were the ones who were like, oh my God, I need these, I need a vest like this. You know, I think there's people who work out in the summer who are athletes who would need a vest like this. Unfortunately, if uh, there are parts of the world, and I think uh, Montreal is, is, is one part of the world where uh, there's an increase in, again, temperatures, heat waves. I think if, uh, if we don't do more to combat climate change, unfortunately, I think we will find ourselves, perhaps many of us needing these types of vests to walk around in 20 years in the summer. So this is sort of my little unique personal example of, of someone who had to figure out a solution for themselves. What we want to do for our research is find more of these uh, uh, examples in terms of climate resilience. And then more broadly, I really want to, again, celebrate the agency and the contributions of the disability community to combating climate change. Now, it's true that there isn't a lot of expertise on climate change per se in the disability community. However, uh, there are lots of ways in which combating climate change uh, intersects with things that people with disabilities do know a lot about. So for instance, I would argue if you're someone who has been, uh, as, as is the case in many parts of the world, advocating for your mass transit system to be accessible to you as a, as a person who has a, an impairment, whether sensory or, or, or in terms of physical mobility, well, I think you're a climate activist. You're a climate activist because we know that we need to reduce reliance on automobiles and promoting mass transit, making that more accessible, uh, not only to people with disabilities, but to anyone else who could also uh, benefit from uh, an accessible mass transit system. That's gonna reduce carbon emissions. Uh, if you're an expert in disaster risk reduction, then uh, uh, it, when those those risks are caused or fueled by climate change, then you are also an expert in climate adaptation and resilience. Uh, and there's so much that we can learn about the stories of people who are on the front lines of fighting for their rights in ways that intersect with the challenges that uh, societies face in responding to climate change. Finally, if you are if you're a person with a disability and you're confronted by a range of challenges on a daily basis, living in a world that's not been built uh, with your, your needs and uh, perspectives uh, in mind, you must necessarily develop a whole set of skills and really practices of resilience. I like to think that many people with disabilities are experts in resilience. And even though we've seen in the, the pandemic that's still unfolding, that the majority of the victims in the world are um, uh, have a disability. I'm. I also know and and have seen online commentary from people with disabilities who have also pointed out. Okay, well, I was actually kind of ready for this. 
like uh, I face challenges like this in terms of accessing food or transportation or uh, specifically, you know, as people have had to work remotely, it's been a huge psychological adjustment for people and very hard. But if you were someone who uh, was already remote working remotely because of your disability, then the learning curve was not the same. And uh, in fact, you may have found that you were basically that the adjustment challenge wasn't the same. So I just think in general, you know, if we look at long-term trends around climate change, we are going to live in a more challenging world. And I think that we should look to the expertise of people who, because of disabling policies and environments, have had to learn how to live and thrive even in really difficult circumstances. So you've talked to me about how people with disabilities are makers, knowers and doers of climate action and have lots of agency. But you've also talked about how people with disabilities are experiencing the effects of climate change in different ways worldwide. Someone who is experiencing, like, for example, like a heat wave in Montreal is not going to feel the effects the same way as someone in Fiji. So I'm wondering maybe if you could explain how you think about the tension of people who have disabilities as agents and like who who are enabled to do climate justice work and take part in climate action, but also like these systems of inequality. Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. It's something that I, uh, that I care a lot about and think a lot about. And I want to start by saying... Um, you know that ice vest I, I mentioned as uh, something I had found to deal with heat. Well, now it's in you know it's in my basement, uh, even in the summer. I don't I don't use it anymore. I don't need to use it. So so I've had this this advanced treatment for multiple sclerosis, which has basically eliminated this symptom that I used to have heat sensitivity. And uh, so why have I had this treatment? Well, I, I live in a wealthy country. This treatment has developed in specifically for, for my condition. Uh, and I'm sure that my gender has played some role in the treatment that I've received. And the education that I have has also played some role in the treatment that I've received. There's lots of research showing that doctors take the pain men more seriously uh, than women. I'm also convinced and in, in that, you know, my education has helped me sort of understand uh, research and advocate for myself in different ways. And so this complicates the story of, of agency, at least as far as this, this story that I tell about the ice vest, right? So that's particular to, to, um, to my circumstances. It's relatively rare today that you'll find people who will say that change only occurs because of the actions of individuals. Usually there's some recognition that there are structures at play that enable change or make it less likely. So we also see from research on in climate change that the vulnerability of people to different climate impacts is something that's exacerbated or the product of these existing inequalities. And that these inequalities will play a role also in the ability of different people to, to exert agency and transform the world around them. So in the research on climate resilience and disability rights that we are uh, intending to do in India, we're explicitly going to look at the factors that make it possible for people with disabilities to be agents of climate resilience. 
So we are recognizing and interested in understanding and unpacking what are the conditions that make it possible for people with disabilities to be knowers, makers, and doers. So on the one hand, we want to recognize the agency of people with disabilities. And at the same time, we also want to look at uh, what are the contextual factors that make someone with disability more or less likely to be able to act as an agent and, and then and influence the world around them. And so we, we anticipate, of course, that other intersecting forms of oppression will play an important role in the ability of, of people with disabilities to act as agents. And here we'll be looking at specifically children, uh, women, uh, queer individuals, and of course, looking also at the impact of socioeconomic background and education on, on this role that uh, people can play in enhancing their resilience and, and shaping the world around them. That really helps me understand like how it's, it, it's an individual, like enabling individual people um, to take part in climate action, but also uh, these bigger systems of oppression. And I feel like that also helps relate to the idea of like enabling the commons. That's, that's what I'm thinking about right now when you're explaining to me how to remove these barriers and make it easier for people in different contexts to be makers, knowers, and doers of climate action. This is a very humbling conversation for me. Like, I feel like I'm learning a lot. I'm really excited to learn more about some of the ways that people with disabilities are knowers, makers, and doers of climate action. I'm going to hear a little bit more about the stories that you're going to tell with the DICART program. So I'm wondering if maybe just to, to know a little bit more and be a little bit excited about what's to come, if you can just tell me what is next for DICART in the immediate future. So as soon as conditions allow, we'll initiate uh, our research project looking at climate resilience of people with disabilities in India. We will continue to do uh, legal and policy research and put together briefs and other types of uh, capacity building materials with people in the disability community to not only uh, reach people with disabilities and let them know about the importance of climate change for their rights and their struggles, but also to inform people in the climate movement about what disability is, what rights people with disabilities have, what, what accessibility means, how to organize an accessible climate activism uh, initiative. And then finally, through the DICARP website, through uh, webinars, through uh, one-day in-person events, uh, and through this podcast, uh, we want people with disabilities to share their stories of uh, how climate change is affecting them, how they are responding to climate change, and how they are playing an important role in the climate movement and what needs to be done to further empower them in that context. So thank you um, for answering all my questions. I, I know I lost you a lot of questions today. I feel like in some ways, like I learned a lot, but in other ways, I feel like we barely scratched the surface um, as to some some of these points and like greater issues within disability and the climate movement, what would you like to say to just leave me with to think about? Well, I guess the well, last thing I would say is that, um, you know, we decided to start this series of interviews with me because uh, that way I could explain sort of the genesis of DICARB and the broader sort of vision. But actually, you know, going back to what I said earlier, well, I'm, this is still the perspective of a person who is an academic, who has lots of privilege. And what I want us to do in this podcast series 
is really reflect and center other voices that have had different experiences of oppression and have also, I'm thinking about all the people that you'll be interviewing, they all have way more experience in the disability rights movement across a variety of contexts than I do. And so I'm really excited to hear their stories and I look forward to, to the next uh, series of, of interviews in this, in this first season of this podcast. Thank you so much, Sebastian, um, for giving me your time today. And yeah, I also look forward um, to hearing about the experience and the knowledge of the other people we're going to be speaking with. Um, so thank you for giving me all your time today and sharing your knowledge. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Enabling Commons. Stay tuned for our next episode and take care.